This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I am joined by Linda Johansson James. I am excited for her to be here. Linda is the founder of the International Retail Group. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Chris. So, Linda, you've got a long time in this industry. Why don't you tell everybody what you've done and what the International Retail Group does? Great. I'd love to. Um, So for about 25 years, I've been in this industry. My husband and I um, had a business called American Kiosk Management uh, for about 19 years, and we were the largest owner operators in the world of carts, kiosks, and automated retail stores in the world. We operated about 1,500 locations at our height. Wow. Yeah. And, and by the way, all of those locations were ours. So we hired and trained about 54,000 employees over those. (laughs) Believe you me, people wonder why underneath this blonde, I, well, it is natural blonde. No. anyway. (laughs) Um, We hired and trained about 54,000 people. We amassed uh, about $2 billion and we were those people that they said, oh, you know, those cart people that, <laughs> that were operating in the common area. Um, we did kiosks as well, and we started the automated uh, retail as well that, you know, sold things besides chips and Coke, and, and we did pop-up stores um, too. We did that for about 19 years, um, selling our number one brand was Proactive, the Acne skincare. Uh, medication. We did that in five countries and it was the most incredible business. We absolutely just adored operating in the common area of shopping malls. We also were in airports, military bases, um, we just and store and store. So we were also operated inside of Macy's and the Bay in Canada. Wow. Yeah, we loved it. And my husband, a small, well, I guess I should say that a small company uh, by the name of Nestle's um, purchased the controlling interest um, in Proactive, and we operated with them for a couple of years. And um, and we decided at that time that um, it was time to, to you know, part ways. And so my husband retired and I was a little too young to retire and I love retail. So I started International Retail Group and we're a boutique consulting group that helps mainly direct to consumer brands, launch and test in retail. And we can do everything for them or they can pick and choose what it is that they would like us um, to do for them. I also own a temporary staffing agency just for the retail industry where we can help um, retailer staff either temporary, so for a weekend, a week, or three weeks, um, or for um, the length of the test that they're running. So, Very cool part of the retail space. Yeah. I'm curious, when you, had, when you were running for proactive, 
How was the the deal structured with you guys? Was it like a management agreement that you had with them or how did, how did it had proactive hires you and then you just go and run everything? What did it look like? Well, you know, we, we, I have to tell you, Chris, we were absolutely so blessed. We had incredible partners. I'm sure you've probably heard of Guthrie Ranker, the largest direct response company in the world. And we actually were their only retail distributors. And they were so brilliant, Bill Guthrie and Greg Ranker, and, and they still are. I mean, were such mentors to us. But um, we had a um, distribution agreement with them, and we just bought the product from them, and we went out and opened, you know, carts and, and kiosks. And we we just, you know, we, we did so well that, you know, about five years into it, they uh, called us up and said, you know what? would like to be your partners and yeah and we became partners with them for about 10 years and it was it was incredible and like I said we ended up opening about 1500 um, locations in five countries and so really cool I'm gonna ask a simple question I think I know the answer but everybody I think always wondered as they walk through the mall, like those proactive or whenever, like, do those really do well? Or are they just marketing or like, do those do, how well do those do? Well, let me tell you, Chris, we, you know, we, some of our locations did, did, well, we, at our height, we had about 500 locations, carts and kiosks. And we did over, our average locations did about a half a million dollars a year. And we did in 15 malls in the U.S. and Canada, did about $1.7 million off of one little 60-foot cart in the middle of the mall. And we did more than some inline retailers did. I mean, it was, and we had one person working a time, one person a time and $40 kids. But I have to tell you that the reason we did so well, Chris, is because we hired and trained and retrained the most incredible people that work for us. And when people used to say, you know, we hate those people, they're cart people, they're not retailers. I would say, you know what, our people are retailers. We just choose to operate in the common area. And the reason we do is because everybody walks by you. And we weren't the people that ran and chased you down in the middle of the mall. Our people were trained, they wore uniforms, they treated people with respect just like walking in. We were the Nordstroms of the common area. Oh, what a, that's a good place to be. Yeah, it really was. Um, so now you're in this consulting and do you still do things with carts? I do. And I do. And I still think, I still think there's a place, Chris, I think we can't overlook that at one time, you know, the cart and kiosk in the common area and pop-ups are included in that. They used to be even pop-up stores. And I still think that there's a place. Do I think that it's 20% of the malls, the malls overall income now. I don't, but I still think for people who want to test 
in the common area or test in shopping centers that can't afford, you know, to test in an inline store that don't have that kind of money. I still think there's a place if their product warrants it to test on a kiosk or on a cart. Um, I don't think it, it where it's where it was five years ago or 10 years ago, but yes, I do think there's still a place. And, you know, I was at a mall in Utah um, a couple of days ago and they had like 40 carts and every single one of them was filled. But unfortunately, there's still not a lot of new products that we see um, in the common area. So I think we still need to be curating and looking for those new and exciting brands. And I think we could do a lot with brand activations too, not necessarily selling products, but looking for, you know, some other ways to, for people to market in, in the common area. Really fascinating. What, what do you think, a place where the common area activations and carts has been very different is in the open air world? Mm-hmm. Not many kiosks. We had a little bit of a food truck craze for a little while, yeah. but generally it's Christmas trees and like, mm-hmm. and Home Depot put out their tent sale and things like that, but, but not the same as the yesteryear of an enclosed mall. Do you think that could ever get replicated or is it just, there's so many cars driving by, it is what it is? I think that it could, and I think that, Automated retail is the place to look at. You know, when we, I, I think that automated retail is still not really looked at as a form of retailing. And I have to tell you that Gower Smith, and I'm going to give him a big shout out of Zoom, you know, when he came to us 20 years ago and said, I wanted to put proactive in an automated retail machine, my husband and I were like, you gotta be crazy. <laughs> Nobody's gonna buy zit cream unless they can talk to us. You know, they really need to be able to talk to us. And we, you know, it took him quite a while to convince us and the folks that got the ranker, but you know what? We worked very diligently and that GUI, the customer interface part, there's a certain, generation that doesn't want to talk to us, Chris. And when retailers finally are able to delineate and look at the, 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 the generations and who wants to talk to us and who doesn't, right? And be able to really maximize that. And we learned that with um, putting proactive in the airports and military bases and in shopping centers, where we couldn't generate enough revenue to have a staffed model, but we could a proactive model um, in the automated retail machines. Now you have to have brand recognition, right? In order to put something into that, mach- into that machine. But once you have the brand recognition, you can use automated retail to really augment your other ways of um, retail. So having a store, and then augmenting that with automated retail. I think that outdoor lifestyle centers, grocery anchored and Home Depot anchored, you know, we've been looking at those type of centers now to put some of our brands that we haven't looked at before. So I think we can use automated retail. I think we can use pop-up carts and kiosks 
in some of those locations where we haven't thought of before. And maybe it's not outside, but in an overhang or, you know, some of these locations have indoor food courts or places where it makes sense for us to put a retailer that we didn't think to put an inline store. I think there's so many ways today that we can maximize space and look at some other ways for these retailers to do business. Fascinating. Okay. I want to take us to the next part of the show called clear the air. I've got three fun questions for you. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. All right. Question one. When is the last time you tried something for the first time? Is this in business or personal? Anywhere. Well, I would say launching, it was recently launching my retail magazine. I, I don't even know how to write. And I, <laughs> seriously, Chris. And I've launched this brand new retail magazine that now I'm like addicted to. And so I would say just recently in this retail magazine. And what's the name of the magazine for everyone out there? Um, it's called um, IRG Retail Magazine. <laughs> Sorry, it's like not, <laughs> doesn't have like this new fun name, but um, on the cover of this one is actually Chris Igway from, um, who lives in France and is a global uh, retail thought leader. So, yeah. Okay, question two. What is one skill you don't possess but wish you did? Oh my God, patience. Patience, yes. But lack of patience is how you scale up a cart business from it is. a gazillion. So, <laughs> But there are some times I wish I had just a little, <laughs> just a little. Okay, last question. What is one thing most people agree with but you do not? That you have to run promotions in your retail stores. Huh. I hear you there. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> so, well, I, I think that's a great answer because I, I think the, the pandemic has helped a lot of groups realize that that's the, that you're right there and they were able to maintain margins and, you know, there was this race to the bottom and since we couldn't get the product, they didn't have to mark it down mm -hmm. and it really created you know, a windfall and I think some lessons learned on inventory management and markdowns in the retail industry. Yes. So we'll see if it sticks because the, the moment one person reduces price, then there's a herd mentality at times that everyone feels like they need to. So, but I think that comes back to a point you made, which is new products, new products differentiate and you know, if everyone's selling the same thing, then it's just a pricing game. So it's so true. I so agree with that, Chris. Yeah. We are going to take a quick break here. And now a word from one of our sponsors. Placer.ai is the world's most advanced foot traffic analytics platform, providing unprecedented visibility with accurate and actionable insights into the foot traffic analytics and consumer demand surrounding any location. Placer observes anonymized location data from a panel of over 30 million devices in the U.S. They then analyze the data with AI and machine learning algorithms to make estimations on visit trends for any retail location anywhere in the country. 
the platform empowers professionals in retail and commercial real estate to maximize their offline activities with reporting capabilities that include visit trends, true trade areas, cannibalization, void analysis, demographics, cross-shopping, favorite places, and much more. Try it for free at www.placer.ai. Uh, okay. We're going to go to um, Nevada for Barbell Apparel. And what is the name of the town? It's in Summerlin. Summerlin, Nevada. Uh, and why don't you tell us the story? So let's start with, you know, how you started working with this company, who they are, and then how they ended up here. I, I just, I absolutely love this brand. So um, downtown Summerlin, um, the outdoor lifestyle center, um, owned by the Hughes Corporation. I absolutely worship them. They have been incredible to work with. Um, they came to me because Barbell Apparel is a direct-to-consumer brand, athletic fit apparel, which everyone is looking for, and especially during the pandemic, right? All of us look great from here up and from there down. We had on our yoga pants and jogging pants, right? Um, so, um, so they wanted to they wanted to launch into retail and and didn't know what to do. So Jeannie, um, who is the senior VP of leasing um, for downtown Summerlin, said, "I know just the person. I've known her for a hundred years, and and she can help you do whatever it is you need to do." Long story short, is that was in January, we signed the contract. We were going to open our first store in April, and the pandemic hit. And we were almost through with the build out and working through and then everything shut down. And um, Jeannie came to me and she said, listen, Linda, I'd still love for you to open in June. And the four gentlemen who own this brand, they, they're phenomenal, Chris. Um, they're CrossFitters who couldn't find pants to fit themselves. And so they made a pair. We're really a jean company, so they sewed a pair of jeans. And everybody said, oh, my God, you sold a pair of jeans. This has got to be a company. And so they started manufacturing jeans. And they went on Shark Tank. And they got a deal. And they turned it down because they didn't want to give up half their company. So they had bootstrapped it for six years. And they morphed into doing, um, you know, athletic shorts and joggers and shirts and women's. And they're just, it's fascinating. And I went to Alex and I said, Alex, you need to open. And he said, well, if you can open on a shoestring budget, then you can open. So three stores had closed in downtown Summerlin. My original store design was for naught because it was going to cost 60000 to open it. And he, so my uh, COO and I went from store to store and we took fixtures from every closed store that there was in downtown Summerlin and we opened the store for less than, it was about $8,000. And, <laughs> and, and Chris, and Chris, and this, and this was meal pieced together from fixtures from a closed Forever 21, from a closed, I don't even know, like three or four stores. And we literally took dollies down closed main street in downtown summerlin and did it moved it ourselves and i will send you pictures chris because you'll be fascinated on how beautiful this store was 
And everybody who came in said, Linda, you ought to put the store up for a design. How did you design this? And I said, well, in all honesty. <laughs> and we actually merchandised it ourselves, TJ and I. And we learned this was my first full-fledged inline store, Chris, that I had ever opened with apparel. And we killed it. And Alex said, if you can open every store like this, $8,000, that's all in, with the exception, of course, the apparel. And we killed it. And this was in June during the pandemic and, and uh, 2020. And, and the first six months, we just absolutely killed it. And I'll tell you, and I'll tell you why. First of all, because we didn't spend a lot of money and what we spent our money on was employees and training, which I've always believed is just the most important thing that you can do. We didn't discount, we didn't run promotions. We took care of the people that walked through the door. And, and it, was, it was incredible. And you have to have a great product, which we do. It's an incredible product. The boys, I call them the boys, I shouldn't do that, the men, the guys who own Barbell, they're incredible to work with. And while all the other stores started reopening, Chris, they would stay open from 11 to 6. Well, people don't go to dinner till 6. So we stayed open till 8. So when everybody else was closed, we were open. And so guess who they shopped with? So the story is that we now have six stores. And um, it's been an incredible journey. And I just, I have to say, if it wasn't for Jeannie, you know, really pushing us to get open and working with us and discounting the rent to make, to help us to open, Chris, we would have never done it. I thought there was no promotions. I mean, but, but I'm saying the, the, the rent promotion, <laughs> I mean, the discounting the rent for us to help us. I know. <laughs> we didn't discount any of the clothing. I can tell you that. But. So, so it's been incredible. I love this story in a 2022 world. This sounds like a, a story of grit from the 1970s. Um, yeah. So. It really was. So just so I make sure you signed the lease in January of 2020. Is that when the lease was signed? Yeah. And then what between January and April, what happened? Were you getting like permits or what were you doing? We, we weren't, well, we were working on the store, doing the build out, getting it painted and- So you had then, spent all the money on the build out already. Yep, and then the mall had shut down. Wow. And so we stopped where we were and we left the store as it was. And we didn't, we didn't have to pull permits because structurally it was an old Chico. So we didn't have to, we just kept it the way it was. So we were going to add all these beautiful new fixtures. I mean, we had budgeted. Yeah. Yeah. So we just used Chico's old fixtures. <laughs> and how, it's <laughs> amazing. How, how, yeah. how much had you guys invested in the build out before the, it got shut down? 9,000. Wow. That's it. You, you're doing all that. And then, and then you get shut down. And then we get shut down. And so we were shut down from March 1st until the end of May. And um, we- The owners were gonna just say, 
forget it and scrap it? Or did you think they were going to go back and want to open it? Oh, they it? were going to say forget it. They were going to say forget it. So I begged. So you... <laughs> So they were going to, they were going to scrap it. They were going to be like, this is, you know, retail's not for us. The pandemic's a sign, whatever it would have been. Sure. Wouldn't you? <laughs> right. I told Alex, I said, listen, if this were me, I'm not sure what I would do, but listen to me. You've already invested this much. You have the clothes. We have the employees. I will tell you that I will work the store myself to ensure its success. I promise you I won't spend a dime more than I have to to get the store open for you. And he said, okay, Linda, if you promise me that you will be there and you will see it through and you will do everything that you can not to spend any money, then go for it. And I, and I did. I worked that store open and close myself and so did my COO. And I still do, by the way, which I still believe is important that if you are in this industry and you are helping a new brand launch into retail, I don't care what the hell your title is, you should be boots on the ground and walking the manufacturing floor. Because now when they come to me and ask me, so what's going on, Linda? I, I don't have to call my COO. I don't have to call the store. I know exactly what's happening. Totally. That's incredible. So um, before this store, they were an online-only direct-to-consumer brand? Yep. And how big were they? International, national? Yeah, they're international. Um, they're very successful. They have people like Joe Rogan, Tim McGraw, the strongest man in the world, Martins Lises, Nick, Nick the Best. I mean, they have a lot of uh, big, big name people that were their brand because they're meant for for people that have smaller waists and bigger legs, athletic built, they can't find jeans or pants to fit themselves. I, 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 I know the problem. I, I was competitive CrossFitting for oh, see, for okay. years, and I stopped. Uh, my garage is. You could train <laughs> for the Olympics in my garage. I built out the. I overbuilt my garage gym, so. I don't know the brand all that well before this, and I, I did some homework before the call, but right. I am going to start to look at some of the clothes here because um, jeans that do what you say are fascinating to me. So, Well, here's the deal. You can run, jump, and squat in our pants. We have a one-year guarantee and that they won't rip or tear. You can climb rocks in them. Listen, you can rock climb in them. You can... I mean, literally, Nick Strong comes in. If you look him up, Nick the best, he comes in. His thighs are huge. And I know I was a competitive bodybuilder. I was a female bodybuilding judge. The men in my era never wore jeans because they, pants, because they, they wore jogging pants or jogging shorts, right? And because they couldn't find jeans to fit themselves. Literally, Martins, Lisa's, and Nick come in our store in Summerlin they put on our pants and they can walk out the door wearing them. So these guys at Barbell have a niche that that no one else has. I mean, they have a four-way stretch. You just, after this call, I'm going to send you some stuff and you're going to be like their biggest advocate because, and that's why we literally, and this is this is where, and after reading your questions that Danielle sent me, 
Here's where I really believe the difference is when direct-to-consumer brands launch in retail. And I was in New York, not this weekend because I was in Salt Lake, but the weekend before looking, going down Madison Avenue. I was in Soho. And I was looking at all of these brands, and I really believe the difference between direct-to-consumer brands being successful has almost 95% to do with the people that you hire and train to represent you than it does almost anything because people will come back if they like you. And especially even people look at now, like my grandkids are in their mid-20s and they never go to the malls. They never shop. They shop online. And the only reason that they will go to stores and shop is if number one, they like the brand, but number two, the customer service that they get. And this is this is new. I mean, this is usually was my generation, not the young Gen Zs and Ys and Xs. And I mean, they didn't really care about going to shopping centers, but they do now. So we have to be spending more time on training and customer service. I'm I'm a huge advocate. Well, and so now they have six locations. Where are they? Yep. So um, uh, Three in, um, three in California, and um, so Summerlin, Salt Lake. Um, we just, we just closed to. Um, unfortunately, one of the questions you you asked was, "What are one of the challenges?" And one of them was that we had, we had short term leases, and we lost two leases. Um, and so we're looking for new locations. Um, so we had three in um, California, and we're down to one. Got it. Because we, yeah, because we did pop up leases because we were still testing. You know, we were testing, and unfortunately, the 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 short term lease. You know, we the owner found another tenant. Yeah, I don't like to say that really. <laughs> <laughs> that was willing to pay a whole heck of a lot more money than we were. And, you know, I, you know, I still struggle with that, but I also understand it from the developer's side, though I, I think. Just like, just, just like you said on the retail side. Yeah. As the, on the developer true. side where I am, I can't discount, no promotions. Of course. <laughs> I get it. I get it. And listen, if I were on the developer side and someone came in and said, listen, if you give me that space, I'll pay you three times more than what that person's paying. Listen, I'm also a business person. There you go. And right, and I'm right also now, a business person. So and right I, now there's I a, get it. there, the tenant demand is Ugh. strong right now. Tenants are trying to open up stores like crazy. And it is the, the pendulums, the, the pendulum of leverage is shifting. So, well, and you know, it's fascinating to me, you know, when I was in New York, you know, you look at Madison Avenue and fifth Avenue and it's like every other location is vacant every other location, but you go to lifestyle centers and shopping centers and they're a hundred percent leased. Yeah. Suburban, suburban markets, grocery anchored retail, power yeah. centers, lifestyle centers have, come back and some yep. and better yep. than pre-pandemic and suburban environments are still challenged. Um, yep. You know, I think I, hybrid has definitely changed the game. Hybrid offices, um, people working remotely <clears throat> help the yes. suburban shopping center. And if they're not going back into the office, that population that was there might not be there in that urban environment. So 
Well, and you know what, Chris, I have to tell you that if you have relationships and I feel very blessed that over the 25 years I've been in this industry, I have great relationships with developers and they'll tell, they'll tell me in advance. They'll say, Hey, listen, Linda, this is what's happening. So either your client, you know, this is where we need to be, or, you know, we need to look somewhere else. And so I think that the relationships that you build in this industry are playing out now and that, that, that you can, if you can't stay in the space where you're at, then you can look at another space. Yep. So I think there's a happy medium somewhere. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate the color on this story. So fascinating. I love that you were, how, how gritty and scrappy you got to get this store op open off the ground. And now they have multiple locations. If they never tried the first one, who knows if they would have any. Right. Uh, so kudos to you. Fantastic story. I want to bring us to the last part of the show. I got three fun questions for you. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. All right, question one. What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? Woolworths. Woolworths, love it. Okay, question two. What is the last item over $20 that you bought in a store? A pair of barbell joggers. <laughs> I'm gonna have to look at this brand. I know, I told you I'm gonna send you some. And then last question, question three. If you and I were shopping at Target and I lost you, what aisle would I find you in? Office supplies. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, listen, Linda, this has been great. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.